This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, October 24th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Daniel Davis. More and more Democrats have come out in favor of impeachment, but it's worth remembering that some wanted to impeach the president from day one. Those voices are often associated with the resistance, and my guest today has written a new book about these individuals, saying that they are the destructive force in American politics rather than President Trump. Our guest will be Kimberly Strassel from The Wall Street Journal. And by the way, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now on to our top news. President Trump lifted sanctions on Turkey on Wednesday after announcing a permanent ceasefire deal had been reached in Syria. The president said he was contacted by the Turkish government, who said they're stopping their military offensive in Syria and that the ceasefire would be permanent. In response, President Trump said that he lifted sanctions placed on Turkey last week and that a small number of U.S. troops would remain in the area to protect Syrian oil fields. Here's part of what he said at the press conference. We were supposed to be there for 30 days. That was almost 10 years ago. So we're there for 30 days, and now we're leaving. It was supposed to be a very quick hit, and let's get out. And it was a quick hit, except they stayed for almost 10 years. Let someone else fight over this long, blood-stained sand. President Trump's announcement came a day after Turkey and Russia struck a deal to remove Kurdish fighters from northeastern Syria. Republican lawmakers stormed a secure room at the Capitol on Wednesday, a room in which their colleagues were questioning witnesses in the impeachment probe. Over 12 lawmakers met outside the locked room, known as the skiff, and then were kicked out. Most of the group refused to leave and ordered pizza during the sit-in, according to the Washington Examiner. The staff of Congressman Louis Gomer of Texas were posting updates from Gomert via Twitter, saying, I'm currently in the skiff with my colleagues without our phones. We plan on staying here until we negotiate a resolution. The Associated Press is reporting that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky felt pressure from the Trump administration as early as May to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. The AP reports that more than two months before the July phone call that sparked the congressional probe, Zelensky sat down with advisors to discuss how to navigate insistence from President Trump and his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, for a probe into Biden, as well as how to avoid becoming entangled in U.S. elections. The AP cites three unnamed individuals with knowledge of the meeting. Notably, the AP says it's unclear whether Trump explicitly asked for an investigation into the Bidens. The bodies of 39 people were found inside a truck at an industrial estate close to London on Wednesday. The driver, who is 25 years old and from Northern Ireland, was arrested on suspected murder charges. Authorities suspect the dead bodies are linked to human trafficking. Prime Minister Boris Johnson said, We know that this trade is going on. All such traitors and human beings should be hunted down and brought to justice. Well, up next, I'll be joined by Kimberly Strassel from The Wall Street Journal. Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share? Leave us a voicemail at 202-608-6205 or email us at letters at dailysignal.com. Yours could be featured on the Daily Signal podcast. I'm joined now by Kimberly Strassel. She is a member of the Wall Street Journal's editorial board and author of the new book, Resistance at All Costs, 
How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. Kimberly, appreciate your time today. It is so great to be here. Thank you for having me. So we hear so often in the media that President Trump is degrading our norms and eroding our institutions. But your book is basically suggesting the opposite. You're saying that not his critics and opponents, but Trump haters are actually the ones who are breaking America. And I want to ask you, who fits that description exactly of a Trump hater and and what's the damage they're doing? Yeah, I go through this in the book because there was great care taken with that subtitle. It's a bit of an aggressive subtitle. However, when the publishers and I were first talking about this book and throwing around possible titles, uh, the suggestion was made that it say Trump critics are breaking America, how Trump critics. And I, I rebelled <laughs> against that because I am a Trump critic at times. I think that most thinking conservatives look at this administration much as they've looked at all prior administrations. There are things that they approve of, things that they don't approve of. I think we have an obligation as citizens to look at a presidency that way. The haters are something different. Uh, I argue that these are the folks who, from the moment Donald Trump was elected, actually potentially even before he was elected, had decided that he was a illegitimate president, that he was incorrectly occupying the White House. And along with that, and this is an important part of the book, came the mentality that they were therefore justified in crossing any boundary or breaking any norm in order to remove him from that position. Yeah. And, you know, in the book, you go through a a bunch of different segments of these groups. You talk about um, the media, you talk about judicial activism, uh, judges legislating from the bench. Um, But, you know, we've had judicial activism for a long time. We've had a liberal media for a long time. And even in the Bush days, we did have Democrats comparing him to, you know, the Nazis. So how much of this is truly new? So I totally agree with you that we have had plenty of ugly partisanship over the years and fights over some of this over the years. Um, The argument of the book is that what distinguishes this time is, again, the, uh, the willingness of people to cross boundaries and take actions that we haven't taken in the past. And I try really hard in the book to lay out what those are, you know, because I think a lot of Americans, they have a generalized sense that whatever is going on in Washington, or certainly a lot of Trump voters, that it's it's beyond the pale, uh, beyond boundaries. And I try to lay out what exactly people have done along the way that is so transgressive. Um, So, for instance, you mentioned judicial philosophy. We've always had conservative judges and liberal judges. That's a question of ideology. What we have not witnessed before, at least not in any way to the extent we're seeing now, is judges also willing to flout basic judicial norms uh, as a way of roadblocking this presidency. So, for instance, I have a statistic in there. Uh, Donald Trump has been subject to more nationwide injunctions of his policies than all of the six presidents before him combined, which is an astonishing thing. And look, the Supreme Court very much discourages judges from issuing national injunctions, except for in extreme circumstances, because of a couple of reasons. They think that executives are accorded a certain amount of deference in policy uh, and that you need to let litigation play out but also because it stifles judicial debate. We have a a system in which we have different appellate circuits. We encourage them all to come to their different conclusions, fight this out until it gets up to the Supreme Court. Uh, But when you have a judge issuing a nationwide injunction, it's he is essentially imposing his view on the country. Um, And this has been so bad that recently even Clarence Thomas, in an opinion, said, you folks need to knock it off. 
So these are the kind of new situations that I'm talking about in the book. Yeah. And of course, one of the big claims that the resistance advocates make is that this is justified because this president is uniquely a threat (laughs) to America, that he is flouting executive power in a way that is unprecedented or some kind of unique threat. I think a perfect example of this is actually a new book that's coming out next month written anonymously by the New York Times op-ed writer. This was just reported this week in CNN. This is crazy. The anonymous uh, uh, resistance person within the Trump administration is now coming out with a book while staying anonymous. And that's just, I think, one example you could could pick of people saying, you know, an extraordinary uh, measure is warranted because of the extraordinary threat of the president. So to that claim, though, how does Trump's use of his executive power compare to past presidents? Yeah, so I have a whole chapter in this about this because, again, their claim over the years, ever since he was elected, is that he is destroying democracy, undermining our core constitutions. Again, I, I think he's norm-breaking, certainly, okay? Donald Trump, in terms of his speech, his rhetoric, his tweets, uh, sometimes his demeanor in office, we've never had a president like this before. And his critics would say it's highly unpresidential. Uh, His supporters would say, actually, we elected him for that reason. (laughs) But my argument and, and the chapter in the book, if you step back and you actually look at institutions, this has, in fact, been an extraordinarily rule bound administration in terms of department and agency actions and executive power. Um, in part because a lot of the people that flooded in to work for the Trump administrations were people that were had been very disturbed by the prior administration's abuse of executive powers. And all of these agencies going around Congress, coming up with, you know, vast new regulations and regulatory programs, whether it be the clean air or, you know, I mean, the climate change agenda at the EPA or other things. So uh, and then you had folks like Don McGahn, the former general counsel, who came in and had spent years of his life fighting against this kind of administrative state and made sure that there were general counsels uh, appointed into every one of these departments to rein all of this back in. Donald Trump, people talk about the fact that he's issued a lot of executive orders. But if you look at the nature of those executive orders, the vast majority of them are telling government to stand down. Or get out of the way of business, which is absolutely fundamentally 180 degrees opposite of how Obama used his power. Right. And and there's also a lot of talk about the deep state, uh, even though Trump has uh, taken over the executive agencies, that that there are these bureaucrats uh, within those agencies that are undermining his agenda. What do you think about that? Are these uh, anti-Trump bureaucrats having a significant impact? They are. And I'd like to hasten to say that obviously there are many federal employees who do their job dutifully every day, but there is a significant minority that have openly said they're part of the resistance. Uh, you know, there's been some different tapes of them saying we we belong to the resistance, we exist to undermine what he's doing here and throw sand in the works of his agenda. But there's also just more compelling evidence of the problems that this cause. I. Cite, for instance, Senator Ron Johnson, who runs a a government committee in in the Senate. His staff did an analysis uh, of the first 125 days of the Trump administration. In that time period, there were 126 leaks, 
more than one a day. And many of them dealt with really sensitive national security information. These were not coming from Trump's own appointees or people he brought in. These were coming from the bureaucracy at some point or for former Obama officials as well. You know, this is not only harmed national security, but it's it's led and again a lot of the book is trying to point out the destruction of this the problems that come with this but you know the american public if you look out at the the polls they've lost enormous faith in federal government and in the bureaucracy and in their their belief that the federal bureaucracy is exists to do the right thing well one of those federal bureaucracies that uh, at least until recently, had retained a lot of trust was the FBI. <laughs> yeah. And you have a couple chapters where you discuss the FBI, and in particular, James Comey, during his time as FBI director. Would you say that Comey damaged the FBI as an institution? Oh, he absolutely harmed it from top to bottom. Look, I've got polls in there talking about, again, the lack of faith Americans now have in the FBI and the Department of Justice. Many of these, the kind of Americans that you would uh, expect to have, older Americans in particular, to have more faith that the FBI would do the right thing. And it, it isn't just that lack of faith, but, I mean, look at the hollowing out of that agency. I mean, nearly all of its leadership is now gone. They were either fired or reassigned or they resigned because of these extraordinary actions that they took. And it's it still astonishes me that we even can say the following statement, that the FBI opened a counterintelligence investigation into an active presidential campaign. I mean, it's that's Hoover type stuff. Right. And it's a it's an extraordinary thing there, those chapters go into detail about some of the other actions that Jim Comey took, which really have given Americans honest and legitimate cause to worry that our FBI engaged in politics, meddled in our election in 2016. And then, of course, there was Robert Mueller, the special counsel who went on a two-year investigation, which many saw as shoring up our democracy and, and, you know, investigating foreign threats to our elections. Now that we have the Mueller report, we've seen him testify before Congress. What's your assessment of it? And was that a net positive or a net negative on the FBI as an institution for well, America. Well, look, uh, it's good that Robert Mueller or it's good that a team of people took a hard look at Russia's involvement in our election. We needed answers on that. And, you know, we can't have countries doing things like this. And so we needed the facts of all of that. That being said, I think on the, the whole, it, this was a net negative for the country uh, because, first of all, one of the problems, too, by the way, I would just say when Rod Rosenstein first appointed Bob Mueller, um, nobody at that point yet knew, for instance, that the FBI had used a dossier that had been paid for by the rival campaign. Um, this was very much a story about Trump-Russia collusion. Um, my concern and my issue with Bob Mueller was that when we got later in the fall of 2017 and that information did came out, it became evidently clear that this story was just as much about the FBI and its behavior and its actions and the origin the origin of these Trump-Racha claims as it was about the claims themselves. And Bob Mueller, having served as 11 years, the longest standing FBI director after Hoover, he was just never in a position to dispassionately investigate the FBI's behavior. And in fact, 
He'd pulled in an entire team of people at the beginning who'd been part of that entire FBI and Department of Justice investigation. So they had no incentive. In fact, they had a, every reason not to look at it. And so as a result, in the end, not only did we get a lot of the prosecutions that you always see come with a special counsel, which is what makes them dangerous, prosecutions on process crimes, etc., um, but we ended up getting a report that A, didn't give us the history of how this actually came about, and and B, I think very troublesomely uh, evaded the normal special counsel guidelines and ended up dumping that entire second half with obstruction of justice out on the nation and, and led us into a whole nother debate about obstruction of justice. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned previously um, judicial activism, but specifically the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court nomination process. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think of norms that have been degraded <laughs> uh, in the last couple of years, um, I guess we thought that Robert Bork was the beginning of of uh, eroding that norm, but it's gotten certainly worse. Now you don't expect many Democrats at all to side with a Republican nominee to the Supreme Court. Do you think there will ever be a return to normalcy on this after after Trump or do you think it's just going to be party line votes on nominees? Well, this is an excellent example of damage that has been caused, right? And you're right. Again, have we had partisan confirmation battles? Absolutely. Bork, Clarence Thomas, you name it. But have we ever had one, though, in which we had the minority member, uh, leader of the Judiciary Committee, Diane Feinstein, withholding these allegations until after a nominee had made it through their confirmation hearings? Or Democratic senators, and I'm talking about Cory Booker here, having Spartacus moments and saying that they're going to release committee sensitive information in violation of committee rules. Or liberal Democrats demanding that the FBI pass judgment on nominees that are meant to be vetted and confirmed by the Senate itself. I mean, this was so much norm breaking all around. And then, of course, the crowds and the activists. And I mean, this this was nuts. Um and the worry here, again, it's not just as you said that, look, when Washington sets a bar low, it tends to just keep going lower. And the worry here is how many really capable, talented people are going to avoid public service and serving their government because they are so concerned that a repeat could happen to them. And th- this is, again, this is kind of the damage that the book goes through. Well, so right now in Washington, um, there's constant talk about impeachment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this week I saw uh, Senator Marco Rubio said that Democrats are treating impeachment in a very casual way, um, in a very unserious way. And I wanted to ask you if that itself does damage to impeachment, because impeachment is a very important constitutional duty that the Congress has. Are you concerned that the way it's being engaged in right now could actually undermine impeachment as a future check on the presidency? Hugely. I have a whole chapter in the book about House Democrats and just what they've managed to do in terms of norm breaking since they took over a mere, what, nine months ago. And, you know, look at the speed with which they held Bill Barr in contempt of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, You know, contempt is also a very serious tool. It's been used in the past as a threat, as a way to get people to negotiate and end up handing over documents or testimony. Usually it doesn't come to that because people get to an agreement. Before the Justice Department had even been able to negotiate 
with Jerry Nadler's committee, they were already saying, we're going to hold you in contempt. So we're watering down that. But also impeachment, yes, one of the most serious powers in the Constitution. Um, Democrats are right. They have the ability to conduct an impeachment hearing any way they want, and they have the right to impeach Donald Trump on anything they want. If they don't like his tie, they can, you know, they can <laughs> impeach him. But there's a reason that the past two impeachment proceedings in the modern era were done fully and transparently in front of the public. Uh, there's a reason why the House actually went to the floor and authorized such an impeachment inquiry because it meant you were taking accountability, that there was a majority will within the House and you proved it to move forward on this. Um, because in the end, impeachment is a political tool. It's And the measure of success of impeachment is whether or not you can convince a sizable majority of the country that you have provided sound enough evidence that a president has engaged in a high crime or misdemeanor and therefore deserves to be removed and for the vote of the people to be overturned. Um, and, you know, look, right now the polls, people keep talking about how the polls are showing more people. But in the end, you still don't have 50 percent of the country who buy this. So who have you really convinced other than your base? Um, and I keep warning my friends on the liberal side of the aisle do you really want to set this precedent of using partisan, uh, using impeachment as a partisan political tool? Because guess what? One day there is going to be a Democratic president and there's going to be a Republican House. And if this is a standard, one of the first things they're going to do is file articles of impeachment. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, what about the president's dealings with Ukraine? I mean, this is really now driving the impeachment train, at least at this moment. Um just this week, we've seen ambassadors speak out about what they say they saw. And, um, of course, all this got started with an anonymous whistleblower. <laughs> uh, do you think the resistance is in action here? And if so, how? Look, we don't know the details about the whistleblower, obviously. Um, and we don't even know a great deal about the testimony of any of these officials because Democrats have kept it all hidden. You know, we've had some leaked opening statements. Um, there's no question that Bill Taylor, for instance, the former charged affair to the Ukraine, seems to really he had to, seems to have expressed a very strong suspicion that uh, the White House was. Uh, withholding aid for partisan political purposes. But again, even if you read his opening statement, he says, yeah, here's why I want to tell you this is why I believe this. Because in essence, he doesn't really have any evidence of it. It's his own judgment. And I think the hard part for many Americans is not just that they haven't been allowed to see the transcripts and what else came out. Uh, did did one side of the aisle manage to to back up those claims? Did the other side manage to demolish those claims? We don't we don't know, but but there's a problem that they haven't seen it, and then there's also the problem that this does come as we were just talking on the back of the fact that there's a lot of evidence out there that there are a lot of people in the State Department that simply don't like this president. It's a lot of people in the intelligence community that don't like this president. So who is the anonymous whistleblower? Is the, the are, are these ambassadors testifying? Are they really neutral on this subject? Or is politics going on here? Well, we've talked about the erosion of uh, institutions at the hands of the resistance. Um, and you've also mentioned that President Trump, you think, is eroding some norms. Um, but... Do you think the president bears any blame at all for the erosion of, of institutions? I know some have, 
you know, criticized him for calling the press the enemy of the people. Would you say that that, you know, is is just one of those breaking of norms uh, or do you think that hurts, you know, institutions in some way? Well, it is a huge breaking of norms. Okay, let's just be out there. And again, while I think a lot of Americans voted for Donald Trump because he is a disruptor, you know, I think that many of those people and I I talked to a lot of those people who voted for him for that reason, still nonetheless wins at moments where it goes kind of above and beyond, obviously. Right. And and by the way, does does harm to the president himself. Um, He puts a lot of people in a lot of awkward positions of having to try to defend the indefensible um, in his party. I'm talking about members of Congress in particular. Um, and so th- there should be some limits on disruption. <laughs> I think it is a harder case to make that that he's damaged core institutions, right? Um, you know, people try to make the case, and I, and I think they've done their own argument damage. When you come out and you call Donald Trump a tyrant, an autocrat, a dictator, you know, obviously a guy who's massively reduced the, the number of regulations in federal government and appointed very serious conservative judges to the, you know, to the courts is not a dictator. <laughs> right. OK, I mean, you can't hold those two ideas in your head at the <laughs> same time. But but the rhetoric has been so over the top that it's been harder to tease out individual moments. Right. So I think that there are moments like, for instance, I point out in the book, I wasn't really a big fan of the president's pardoning of, you know, this sheriff Arpaio. Um, I think he absolutely had the authority to do it. You know, the presidential power pardon power is enormous. But, you know, he didn't even wait for the, the court process to sort of proceed. Um, and, and so those are the kind of things where you're setting new norms and then you risk that a president comes along later and, and builds on those. And we have even more breaking of norms, you, you know. But then again, at the same time. Every president does this to a certain degree, right? I mean, Bill Clinton and Mark Rich, right? I mean, you got to go back and and look at this. So every president will push boundaries on some things. I, but I again, Donald Trump's rhetoric, his speech, his particular manner of being a president, we're never going to have another president like him. And we're going to have him with us for another year or five years at most. And then that particular mannerism is going to leave. And you have to step back and ask yourself, like, was anything broken, fundamentally broken? And and I think that's a harder case to make. Well, I mean, of course, the founders uh, expected and hoped that each branch of government was going to be zealous for its own power and push mm-hmm. back against uh, the others. So I guess in one sense, you would hope and expect that that for this experiment to work, Congress has to be, you know, ex- asserting itself against the president. But um this uh, breaking of norms and institutions that you're talking about, it sounds to me like you're saying that goes beyond what the founders expected. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Let's be assertive, okay? I mean, I, I'm I'm a big fan of Congress reasserting its power. Uh, you know, here here's a funny <laughs> just just to, to to get to your point about the branches and everything. This is an example I go through in the book. But when the president, for instance, issued his emergency declaration down at the border, you know, I, I remember all of these people on the left instantly saying, like, this is unconstitutional, and you know, and another reason to impeach the president, and he's an autocrat. But I remember Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, and it was great. He said, uh, well, I mean, it was it was sensible. 
he's been one of the more frequent critics of Donald Trump. Um, and on the Republican side, on, yeah. On the Republican side, he's been a very, very tough critic. And uh, when it came time for the Senate, they held a vote on whether or not to override the president on that executive authority. And he was asked if he was going to do it. And he goes, no, you know why? I'm not voting for it. And here's why. Because ever since I got here to Congress, I have been pushing my colleagues here for Congress to claw back its power of emergency declarations. Because we have ceded too much of mm-hmm. the power to the presidency. But guess what? This is what we get. And it is not clear to me that he has, in fact, violated anything in issuing this border emergency declaration because we've let presidents do this over a period of decades. So my point being is, even Ben Sass recognized that this is just a legitimate area of dispute, a legal dispute. It's gone to the courts, and at some point, we're going to get an answer on whether or not it was appropriate or not. Just like so many things that Barack Obama did got sent to the courts, and we had the judiciary render judgment. No one called him an autocrat. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of Congress reasserting its powers, um, I, but I, <laughs> I would like to think that it would do so with with some deliberation about the powers that they really need to claw back rather than using its powers in brand new ways that lower the bar on some things and potentially damage our republic. Yeah, the question is, Does Congress uh, is Congress willing to take on the responsibility of reclaiming those powers that they've outsourced to the executive branch? Are they really in the long term willing to, to, to do what's required to take back those powers from from the president's own branch. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. No, I mean, yeah, go. Ben Sass, by the way, is just brilliant on this subject. He has delivered some of the best sort of like schoolyard rock speeches down on the Senate floor saying, what are we even doing here as an institution anymore? We sit around and gripe about stuff that the agencies do, but we don't pass laws re-clarifying what, in fact, the limits of their power are. You know, we don't pass legislation anymore. Uh, We basically have big fights over, you know, Senate nominations knees and and then you know and then now, do an omnibus bill at the end of the year and then do an omnibus we don't do our spending bills we don't you know we have certain obligations and congress is ceding its powers right and left so yeah by the way bring on congressional emancipation but how about we do it instead of just some of your basic core responsibilities instead of you know whipping out impeachment for you know we've been doing this now for so long well, the book is called Resistance at All Costs, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. Kimberly Strassel, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me in. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please do be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Pippa. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.